Let me start out by saying this. A few years ago, a TCU student who was a, a Neely fellow came into my office. A few weeks before graduation, God was bringing upon them a profound sense of conviction for some bad decisions in their life. We talked, we were sad together, and we prayed. They said, Ryan, I can't bear it anymore. I need to be honest. I've severely cheated in one of my Neely classes and need to tell my professor about it, but I'm scared. If I fail the class, I won't graduate. Either way, I have to face the shame associated with my decision. Well, the student ended up confessing his academic dishonesty. They failed the project. They still graduated. Pride was certainly broken, but character was intact. Another student had a bold personality. She was involved, friendly, and in a creative writing major. She had a command of words, therefore. She would say, too, a great command over words, a greater command over her own words than her tongue. She often spoke her mind, chalking it up to her personality. I'm just someone who speaks my mind. The thing was, though, friendships were hard for her to keep. She wondered why. But God gave her grace, and as the years progressed, her words ceased. She left college with rich friendships. The last student wrestled with health issues, a bright mind, no doubt, a love for the Lord and for others. But as the doctor's appointments came and went, the counsel for them from them was to do something very hard, something very costly, something that he didn't want to do, to withdraw from classes. What? What about my friends and community? Moreover, I mean, I have a timeline, a future. Am I supposed to just put that on hold for the sake of my health? The doctors would say yes. That is, if you want to give yourself the best shot at getting well. And so, not easily, the student withdrew from classes and entered into an uncertain future. Now, why do I share these three stories of TCU students that I've gotten to know with you? On the surface, they don't really seem that connected at all, do they? Different circumstances, different genders, different majors, and knowing them, I can tell you they were very, very different people. But here's the thing. Do you know the Bible is going to say that they all share something in common? Do you know what that is? They were all wise. They were all wise. Wisdom. I don't know about you, but if you're a Christian, do you think about wisdom in the Christian life often? You know, it really is something that the Bible wants us to be. I mentioned earlier that the Bible knows nothing of the Christian fool. That's not a good category. But wisdom is unique because it's not just smarts, as we'll see. It's not just intelligence. And it's so vital that without it, I would say you're going to ruin your life. That without it, you'll ruin relationships. And without it, you really won't understand what life in this world is all about. So, in the words of Proverbs 4, get wisdom. Get it. Get it. Above all, get insight. All semester long, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And here's the thing. All semester long, the book of Proverbs will be looking back at us. 
And it will be asking us questions if we want what it has to offer. And it assumes that we're in need. And how, we'll soon see. But for now, I want to ask this question. What is the thing that Proverbs wants to give us? And that leads us, y'all, to my very first point here. The goal of Proverbs. The goal of Proverbs. Now, I've just got two points tonight. This is going to be the longer of the two. And I want to take a look at this idea of what is the Proverbs, what is its goal, what is it orienting us into? And verses 1 through 6 are going to want to be where you keep your eyes. The first thing you need to understand about Proverbs is that they are short, pithy statements, right? They are meant to cause you to think and to mull them over. It's been said that they are the Jolly Ranchers of Scripture. You know what I mean by the Jolly Ranchers? Like hard candy, it doesn't go down easy, it's meant to be in your mouth for a while as you mull it over. Unlike my favorite candy, sour gummy worms, one chomp, and they're down the hatch. You know what I'm talking about? I love those things. Okay. But you know what? Proverbs are not only in the Bible, they're actually all over our culture too. And we have them all the time. I mean, think about it. Hold on a second. Think about this. The apple doesn't what? Fall tar from the tree. That's right. A bird in the hand is better than what? Two in the bush. Or... The one that befuddled the greatest anchor man of all time, Ron Burgundy, when in Rome, what? Do as the Romans do, okay? Here's the thing. Proverbs are not, are not ironclad promises. They are generalizations. They're not absolute statements of fact. They assume that you, they've, that you have got to think about the situation and whether or not they apply. For there are times, right? where the family member is quite different from their parents, where a greater opportunity is worth waiting for, and when you shouldn't follow the crowd, be they Romans or TCU students. So they're generalizations. For our book, the biblical book of Proverbs, these statements begin in earnest in chapter 10, and all of them are meant, along with the first nine chapters, to meant to instill in us what the first seven verses we just wrote, read about are promoting. Turn your eyes there, look with me, and read this together again with me. Did you catch it there? The Proverbs of Solomon. Solomon was David's son, the king of Israel. And he was known for his great wisdom in Israel, for collecting sayings, putting them together, and more or less giving us the book of Proverbs. And listen what he says here in verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction, verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. The point he's trying to make here were those two statements. Grammar nerds, those are purpose clauses. That's the purpose of the book. He's saying this book is so that you might know wisdom and instruction. This book is so that you might understand words of insight. That you might receive instruction in wise dealing. I know it feels a little funky in the English that they would start out like that. But he's telling you up front his thesis statement. Okay? I love what uh, Eugene Peterson writes when he has his translation, the message. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. It's the exact same verses, one through, two through six, that are just glorious. Listen to what he says. These are the wise sayings of Solomon, David's son, Israel's king, written down so we'll know how to live well and right, to understand what life means. And where it's going, a manual for living, for learning what's right and just and fair, to teach the inexperienced the ropes and give our young people a grasp on reality. And I love this line. 
There's something here also for seasoned men and women, still a thing or two for the experience to learn, fresh wisdom to probe and penetrate the rhymes and reasons of wise men and women. You like that? The point is simple, friends. Proverbs is written. The goal of Proverbs is to make us wise. It's to make us wise. And now wisdom isn't something that we often think about, is it? But it matters a ton in the Bible. In fact, in chapter 8 of Proverbs, it's going to say that if you had on one hand a billion dollars, and on the other hand you had wisdom, the Bible says you would be a fool to take the money. Do you think about wisdom that way? Listen to what it says in chapter 8. For wisdom is better than jewels. And listen, and all that you desire cannot compare with her that is wisdom. I don't know about you, but that doesn't reflect my heart and life. Does this reflect your deepest desires? Or do you want, right, more than wisdom? Do you want a good job? More beauty? More power and success? More friends? On our campus and in our culture, many think that for life to go well, you just need to follow the moral rules. Why do I mention that? Because we need to get at why we need wisdom. And one of the strategies that we often think about is that if you want life to go well, you just follow the moral rules. You don't cheat, you don't sleep around, you pay your taxes, you don't speed, so on and so forth. And this is often the conservative or the traditional approach to how life goes well. Obey, and things will go all right. But there's another approach as well, too. Broadly speaking, speaking, this approach says morality will never do. We need science. We need progress. We need information. Free thinking and self-expression are what I need to lead the good life. Does this sound familiar? This approach is often the approach, the progressive mindset or the liberal mindset. But I would like to suggest to you that wisdom comes along and says, no, 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 dear friends. It's something altogether different. Moral rules and information and expression will never be enough. Why? Because there are situations that the moral rules don't address. And when all the information in the world can't tell you what you should do, and when expression actually leaves you unhappy, we need something greater, and it's wisdom. You see, when the Bible tells us some of the things about our life, it does tell us them. That you ought to care for the poor. That you don't commit adultery. That you love your spouse. Here's the thing. It doesn't cover everything. In fact, here's the thing you have to see. The majority of the decisions in your life aren't covered directly in the Scriptures. You're not going to be open up a Bible verse and say, you should be a vet. Or you should marry Mike. Or go on vacation in Wyoming, not Idaho. That just doesn't exist, okay? And so how then, friends, how then are we going to be able to live life, to be able to live life on the ground when we don't know what we ought to do? You know what the Bible's answer is? Wisdom. You and me need wisdom. And I love what it is. Proverbs is telling us, that its goal is to give you a life well lived, a life of flourishing. And therefore, as Tim Keller points out in one, of his, in one of his entries in that book, he says this, 
This is worth gold. You might want to snap a photo of it if you if you got 10 seconds. The book of Proverbs does not talk nearly so much about how to make right decisions. Hang with me. As to how to become the kind of person who makes right decisions. Does that make sense? The book of Proverbs is not designed and geared to say, if X, then Y. This is how you make the right decisions. It's not concerned with that. Rather, it wants to shape you. To use a big fancy word, it wants to inculcate in you its vision for life. It wants to shape you and change you such that you are a man or woman that begins to live rightly. That's what the book of Proverbs is after. Because it knows if it can do that, the good life is on offer for you. So now we come back then to what is wisdom. What does the Bible mean when it talks about wisdom? I know this is a long first point. It's just part of it. You've got to hang with me. And I think that you've got to understand these three things if you're going to understand what wisdom is about. Wisdom is about, by definition, competence, skill, know-how, aptitude, Plug in your synonym. I like the word know-how or skill. Okay? That's what wisdom is about. Verse 2. When you look at that verse 2 there, it says to know wisdom and instruction. That word wisdom, that word is the, is the Hebrew word chokmah. And that refers to instruction. It refers to skill. We, we can read in the, in the Bible where it's used in other parts. And it's used for like skill in building the temple. And... Uh, Skill in, uh, in, in design of the temple. Like it's, about, it's about having know-how or competence. We'll talk a lot more about this later next week. But here's the thing. It isn't natural. It isn't something that's downloaded at birth. It is learned and acquired. Anyone can have it, verse 33 tells us. Did you catch that? Verse 33 on your page there, it says this. But whoever listens to me, that is to wisdom, will dwell secure and will be at ease. That phrase there that you want to pick up on is whoever listens to me. And so I would say this, like your handwriting is better than it once was. Okay, maybe not, maybe not. But your golf swing might be better. Your reading level is better. Your ability to dance or to sing is better. It's acquired through practice. You can gain it with time. But you must apply yourself in the search of wisdom. That's firstly, wisdom is skill. Second, wisdom is by definition practical. Look at verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Those are all words that are explaining life on the ground, okay? It's more than thinking right things. It is thinking right things and then living them out. Think about this. When we're done in a moment, we're going to enjoy some Krispy Kreme glory, okay? And while enjoyable, I know with my mind that donuts, if eaten in mass, are not good for me, okay? But if that doesn't work itself out in my life by actually refraining from eating a dozen of them in one sitting, I might be smart, but I'm not wise, the writer Walker Percy once said this, you can make all A's in life, make all A's rather, and still flunk life. Mm-hmm. Are you flunking life and you're making all A's? The Bible comes to you and says, get wisdom. Get wisdom. In other words, you can be an intelligent fool precisely because you know what you do hasn't connected to practice. 
And a teaser for the next week, the Bible is going to say that you don't actually know it if it doesn't flesh itself out in your life. Does that make sense? That knowledge and practice are connected in the Bible's eyes. So wisdom is inherently practical. It demands practicing what we know. Over and over again, the acquisition of wisdom is likened to a walking of a path. And what do you do on a path? You take one foot and you put it in front of the other. And then you take the other foot and you put it in front of the other. It's entirely practical. That's the picture that the Bible wants to give you about what wisdom is. Lastly and thirdly, biblical wisdom actually assumes an orientation in God's world. That He made it, that He made us, and that He made us for others. That He has put us in it, and He's put in it as well, life-giving principles. And biblical wisdom is living skillfully in that reality with those assumptions being made. Let me illustrate. If you walk to the edge of a cliff, and uh, right out from the edge of the cliff, there's nothing below you. If you jump off of the edge of the cliff outward, and there's no land to land on underneath you, do you know what's going to happen? You are going to have a crash course with gravity. And then you're going to fall hundreds of feet all the way down to your death. There are physical laws at play in the world that you live in. The Bible is saying that there's actually other laws at play too. I was talking with a student today just about flying a plane. And my aerospace engineering friends tell me that thanks to Bernoulli's principle, so the principle is named, that so long as, sorry, as long as you have a fluid traveling over a longer distance on the top of a wing, you're always going to get lift. And I want you to see that there's other laws, other givens in God's world that make it go and work. And laws about us, what we're made for, that we're made for community, that we're made to do life with God, we're made to do life with others, and that we're made that way so that life might go well. Biblical wisdom assumes that this is the air that we breathe. I love what Gerard Manley Hopkins put when he stunningly said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Maybe he knew what we were talking about. So where does this leave us on wisdom? Well, I think we've whittled down a definition, and I hope it's helpful, because it's going to be with us for the rest of our series. I'm saying that this, that wisdom is skill in walking in God's ways in God's world. That wisdom is skill in walking in God's ways and in God's world. But there's one thing that's required There's one thing that's necessary. There's one thing that's important for us to be able to do or to see if we want to actually get wisdom. And verse 7 tells us, and that brings me to my second and last and shorter of the two points. Imagine we're taking a journey. Imagine you're leaving Fort Worth from from right here and you're out on, and you're going right here to Stadium Drive and you're going to hit Bel Air slash Berry. And you want to take a journey on to Santa Fe which is that way. If you turn on Bel Air left, you will never ever reach Santa Fe. I mean, technically you would. My geography folks tell me. All the way around the globe, I suppose. The point is that you, the first step is critical. You get the first step wrong, you're not going to go where you want to go. Verse 7 is telling us something. Verse 7 is saying, here is where wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord. If you want to become biblically wise, you have to understand what the fear of the Lord is. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a college student and I heard the phrase, the fear of the Lord, I thought that meant you better be scared of God. Because that's how we use the word fear. But I would actually like to suggest to you that's not at all what the biblical authors mean when they talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not fright. The fear of the Lord is reverence. Fear in that sense is awe. It's wonder. And in fact, you can go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, and it's going to use the word fear in two different senses where you can see that contrast between fear and awe. Do not fear, it says. The Lord brought you out that you might fear Him, that you might reverence Him, that you might honor Him. And so if you want to understand what that is about, fear and reverence, fear and awe, uh, this idea is it's looking at what God has done, who He is, and having our hearts drawn up to Him, to being in wonder and amazement about who He is and what He has done. And I would like to just simply say this, that all of us, no matter who we are, are always making something our fear. Something in your life has captured your heart. What is it? Something is supreme on your heart's value system. Maybe it's making great grades. Maybe it's if I can just get that boy to ask me out, that's what orients my whole life. Or I want to be successful. Graduation is a few months away. I need to get into medical school. Or I need to get this you know, job. That's what the orienting principle of my life is. The Bible would say that's your fear. That's the thing that you are reverencing. And so the point is, is that the sad thing about who we are is that deeply ingrained in our bones is a resistance to fearing the Lord. We're in trouble because by nature, do you know what we are? We're not wise. We're fools. We're fools. Because in our heart of hearts, the natural posture of our hearts is to not fear the Lord, but to make much of ourselves, to make much of His creation in a thousand different ways. So where in the world would there be hope for us? Well, there's hope for us because God loves those and comes after those who are trapped in their own system of self-worship and self-love. That's the gospel, dear friends. You see, I don't know what you think about Christianity, but what lies at the very heart of Christianity is a God that comes to people, hang with me on this, who initially don't want Him. And the only way that you ever come to wanting God is that God enters into your life. He gives you a spark. He regenerates you in such a way that you now begin to want Him. That's what the Bible means when it says we love because what? He first loved us. That's what He does for us. And where do we see the person and the work of God on display Where do we see His glory shining brightly that it might capture our wonder, that it might capture our awe? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this, that Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, there it is, there's the majesty, glory and honor, majesty, my heart being captured by it. What is it? What is it about Jesus' glory and honor? Here it is. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, He might taste the death for everyone. You know what that's saying? The glory of God is put most brightly on display in the death of God's Son for people like you and me. There was never a brighter moment in all of creation, in all of history, where God manifests His glory, His work, His beauty brighter than when blood was pouring from Jesus' veins. Why? For you 
and for me. This is what he has come to do. Listen to what the writer of or what Jesus, what Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians. He says this: that Christ, the power of God, and the what? The wisdom of God. Do you know what this is saying, dear friends? That the gift, the gift that the book of Proverbs wants to give us is that every week it wants to point our eyes to the one who is the true embodiment of wisdom. The one that you get really wise by. The one that we look at and we examine and we, our hearts come alive afresh to what He has done for us. To see Him is to become wise. To see what Christ has done for you and for me. That is to become a wise woman. To become a wise man in this world. It is to grow. One of my favorite stories and pictures of seeing this fleshed out comes from, um, as you can imagine, a C.S. Lewis story, The Narnia Tales. And it's a scene where uh, Lucy has met now face-to-face. Little Lucy's with a child. And she's met face-to-face with Aslan. And she hasn't seen him in a while. And she's grown up a little bit where she hasn't seen him. And Aslan is, for those of you who have never read the stories, he's sort of the Christ figure in these stories. He's a lion. He's majestic. He's, he's royal. He demands praise and honor. And listen to what Lewis, C.S. Lewis writes. I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit of story time here. Uh, but he says this, And then, O oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew she was, that, was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, and the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She, gave, she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, said Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. At RUF, we want you to see Christ as the wisdom of God for us. And then grow in wisdom. And in so doing, friends, find Jesus bigger and bigger and more beautiful and worthy of our hearts, and worthy of our worship. And to do so, friends, is to become truly wise. The goal of Proverbs is to make us wise, to grow us in wisdom. And that comes by seeing the one the Proverbs find their fulfillment in, Jesus Himself. He is our wisdom. He is the one that confounds the wisdom of the world by dying and rising for us. And so this semester... 
Would you come with me as we look to Jesus? Let's learn to love him together for all that he is this semester. And in so doing, let's become wise. Let's become wise together. I want that. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, make us wise. But make us wise by saying the wisdom of God, Christ himself, who has come for sinners, bled for them, redeeming them, promising to change them. And oh Lord, would you help us make us wise that we might live rightly in your world. We so desperately need it. We're fools. And Lord, would you grow us so that we might be skilled at walking with you, at loving this world, loving this campus in ways that others might see the great majesty of Christ himself. We pray this all in your name. Amen.